All right, we are on week three, the last week of our series here, the Money God series. Who here has not been for any of the Sundays for Money God? Oh, I'm sorry, God. <laughs> the best that I can, I will try to bring you up to speed really quick, okay? So we have been covering way too much ground each Sunday. I've had to apologize to everyone. We've gone all over the Bible here in the last couple of weeks. And so to give you guys a recap, Week one. Week one, we found a new definition for money. If you guys are taking notes, if you haven't been here, this is a very important note for you guys. Money is, money is the power to secure freedom, fulfillment, and future. Freedom, fulfillment, and future. Freedom is the ability to do whatever you want to do. Basically, it's to have your way whenever you want to have your way. Burger King mentality, right? Got have it your way. Wow, okay. McDonald's people or Taco Bell or something today, right, okay. Fulfillment. Basically, it's, it's to be happy. It's, it's to find a way to fill voids and holes in your life. So if, if, there's, if there's a place in your life where, where you feel empty, if you just feel like you need more, fulfillment is the ability to fill that hole, to be happy because of something you're putting in a hole. And future is concerned with securing your health, your safety, <clears throat> or the state of being. And what happens here with money? Think about spending power, right? If you were to win the lottery tomorrow, $1 billion, right? The first thing you would do, okay, is secure your what? Your freedom. You would go and quit that job tomorrow. Agree? Amen? Everyone said amen? Okay. You'd quit the job. You would find a way to where no one can make you do anything. I'm going to sleep in the morning if I want to eat, you know, a burger for breakfast. I'm going to do whatever I want to do because I can do it. Dang it. Right? It's a joke. Okay. Waking you guys up. Okay. It's, you know, it, it, when you have the money, when you have money, you have the ability, the power to have freedom. Okay? You get to do what you want to do. And the second thing, if you had the money, what you would do is you would begin to, to find happiness. You would fill voids. You know what? I've always wanted that big screen TV. I've always wanted to go to the Bahamas. I've always wanted that big old house on the hill. I've always wanted a white picket fence. And of course, I'm sure that list won't ever end, right? It's just, I want and I want and I want. And you would continue to find ways to find happiness because of your money. The power to secure whatever you want. Money is the ability to do what you want, to feel what you want, and to protect what you have, okay? And of course, your future. When you have money, the first thing you do is you want to get savings accounts. You, you want to get a home security system. When you buy that $10 million house, you want to protect it, right? A fence. No? You guys buy a huge house and just have the doors unlocked and the windows open all day long, right? No. You would find a way to protect what you have, right? Get that brand new car, you would put it in the garage so the weather can't harm it. Money is the ability to secure your freedom, fulfillment, and your future. Now, there's something that we have to understand about money. We have to understand that the idea of money is not from heaven. There's no idea of, of lack in heaven. So the way that God works is he has all that he wants, and so all we have to do is what? Ask. And so the picture of how the kingdom of heaven works is the Garden of Eden, where everything was available to Adam and Eve. Everything was theirs except for one thing, the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, which is a picture of judgment. It's a picture of being God. So, so God says, everything is yours as long as you respect that I still get to be God. 
So what happens in the garden, we said that God, He blesses us, He gives us the garden, He gives us all that we could ever want, and He asks for only one thing, to allow us to stay God. And so when He gives the authority to us, we sin, we choose to go after the tree, we choose to go after God's seat. And what happens is, the authority of this world goes from God to us, and then to Satan. And so the earth, you know, has a new tenant master, uh, a new landlord, and He changes the ways that things work. When God was in control, everything is free if you would just ask, because why? Because he loves us. Now, when Satan is in control, everything has a price tag. Have, have you guys ever heard, nothing in life is free? Yeah? And then you became an adult and you realize, nothing in life is free, <laughs> right? You're like, okay, okay, so why can't I just like, you know, have the lights on without paying for it? I mean, come on, I want to just be nice, okay? And so you find out that this entire world is run by the idea of money. And so what happens is in the garden, the first priority for us as human beings, as creatures created for a relationship with God, the first priority was being. Adam and Eve, your job is, first of all, to be with me and to be with each other. And then they had duties and then they had work. But now that has been flipped. And so now that Satan is in control, the new rules he set forward is now you must work before you be. You must toil before you enjoy life. So the reason that you work and strive and you work your double shift and you save up your money is so at the end of your life you get to what? Be. Enjoy life. You get to kick back at the beach when you're 70 years old and enjoy life. Because you've worked hard for 50 years, 60 years, 70 years to earn that. Is that making sense? And so now the majority of your time, your energy, and, and your heart is spent working and toiling. And so Jesus comes, and he, he begins to kind of mess with us. And so he comes, and he tells us this new idea of things. He says, well, you know, in, in the kingdom of God, it's all about being. So if you would abide in me, and I would abide in you. But abiding is not working. It's being. All the effort is about staying connected to a person. It's all about relationship. It's not about duty or chore. And so when Jesus comes, he comes to reestablish the way God desires things to be, that it would be again about being with Him, not doing. And so the ultimate scheme of Satan is to steal from you, to, to steal your life by keeping you in the rat race of doing. Picture, it's like a little gerbil on like those little wheels. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Just, you just see him just going. Just going. Six minutes later, ten minutes later, he's just... Going. He's not really getting any progress. He's not making any traction. He's just going. And unless we allow Jesus to give us grace to step into the kingdom way of living, where our first priority is not doing, it is being with God, we will forever spend our lives spinning in this wheel. And everything in the Scriptures will sound so foreign to us because we don't have the time to get with God because we're too busy. It is the ultimate strategy of Satan to keep you from God and to steal what's rightfully yours. So that was week one. Week two was this. It was called the temptation of the tithe Christianity. Now, we're not just attacking the practice of tithing, okay? We understand the Old Testament practice of tithing was pre-the law, but, but it was not pre-covenant. But the idea of it, the idea of, of tithing was to remind Israel of the covenant with God. 
And so the idea was that they would take 10% and it would continually remind them that 100% of everything is God's and everything they have, they only have because God chose them. Not because of working or doing. Everything they had was because God chose them from all the earth. And so the tithe was meant to remind them of the covenant. But what's happened with the tithe is we found a way to manipulate this idea. And so what, what comes out of it is we've developed a form of Christianity where if we can just give God a little slice of the pie, if we can just give God 10%, maybe I get to keep the 90%. If I just give God His cut in my life, if I give Him Sunday mornings, Monday through Saturday is mine to do what I want with. If I would just take that tithe check and write it to Him on Sundays, the rest of it, I get to do whatever I want. You know what? Because I paid God His. The only problem is, we don't find this in any of the teachings of Jesus. He teaches a very different understanding. He teaches one thing. He says, to follow me, you must deny yourself daily. Forsake everything for whose sake? His sake. And so the idea that Jesus teaches, he says, yeah, I know that you understand the tithe, but you forgot what the tithe was all about. The tithe was to show you, not that you could keep the 90 if you gave me the 10. It was to show you that all of it is always mine. And so what we've done is we've created a, a new relationship with God where if I show up on Sunday, if I try not to do bad, if I give him my check, then I can go with the rest of my life the way I want it. But Jesus came and said, that will not work. You know why? Because from now on, there's only one kingdom. And in my kingdom, there's only what? One king. And so he says, you cannot serve both God and money. And the word he uses for money is mammon. And it's a word, it's a Babylonian word that has the understanding that it gives money a face. And it says that money is a person. It says that money is not just this thing that exists. It's this, it's this thing that has intentions and a will. And it has plans and schemes. And so what we see is that the very idea, the reality of needing money, it doesn't come from God, it comes from Satan. And so this entire world is run in this process of us constantly needing more. And so we find ourselves living by the need for money. And so we find ourselves serving a different master than Jesus. And so the promise he makes, he says, you cannot serve both me and mammon, me and money. You have to choose because you will love the one and hate the other. And if you choose me, the way it looks when you choose me is that you will choose to seek first the kingdom of God. Meaning your life will not be about doing. Your life will be about being with me, and all of your effort will be put into the kingdom for my purposes, not for yours. And if you do that, then I will provide for every need you have following. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of your needs will be met. Sound familiar? Say a prayer, send me a tithe check each week, and go do whatever you want to do. And I'll give you more. Does that sound like Jesus? Sounds like what you want Jesus to say, right? Come on, be honest. Sounds a lot nicer. And so uh, the idea here is that, is that he never asked for 10%. The 10% was always a test of the heart. Because what God has always asked for is 100%. He's always asked for 100%. He's never allowed, he has never allowed Israel or us to have two masters. He's never allowed us to have two different passions. He's never allowed us to have two different treasures. 
We will treasure either Him or we will treasure anything else. But to treasure Him is to follow Him. To treasure anything else is to betray Him. In the Gospels, He hits this over and over and over because He's not concerned about the money. He's not concerned about your house or your clothes. He's not concerned about any of that. He's concerned about what the house and the clothes and the bank account is connected to, which is your heart. Understand this. Everything spiritual has to do with will. Everything spiritual has to do with your will. In the deepest part of you, what do you really choose? Not your actions, not your words. In the deepest part of who you are, what do you really choose? And so Jesus sums it up in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, here as it is there. Not your will be done after you pay me your 10%. Not your will be done after you give me one day a week. Not your, your will be done after you, you know, spend a few hours serving at the church. All of it or nothing. And the ultimate surprise in the Scriptures is that we would forsake everything material. That we would trade in every, every treasure that we could gain with our own hands and our own work. In turn, for the treasure that God values. And the picture of this in the Scriptures is very simple. The portion of believers, for someone who picks up his cross and follows Jesus daily, the portion that you get, what you get back from God when you give up everything, is Jesus. Because everything for the believer is found in Christ. And if, as you begin to think about all the verses that you've heard about treasures, or about riches, or about prosperity, or, or blessing, you'll always notice the context is very clear. All of these things are in Christ. And so it causes this, this powerful challenge to our hearts. We come to this, this fork in the road. Will I take the hand of money to have my way when I want it? To have the life I can make with my effort and my toil partnering with the power of money? Or will I take the hand of Jesus to have only the life He could give me? Risking the dangers of being poor in this life, maybe suffering, maybe being uncomfortable, maybe dying upside down the way Peter did, or Paul, or wait, I think all the disciples, They all died pretty bad, by the way, except for John. He he got to kind of fall asleep. Do I take that really beautiful path, or do I take the easy one? And what takes place is this. When you take the hand of money, money can take you anywhere in this world, but it cannot take you beyond this life. You take the hand of Jesus, he will take you almost everywhere you never wanted to go. <laughs> Come on, that's the truth. Okay, he will. He, he, he will challenge you and stretch you, and he'll, he'll make you do something called having faith. You'll have to trust him for things. You won't be able to be comfortable all the time. But he can take you beyond this life, beyond this world. That was week two. Okay. Now that you guys are all super pumped about this topic and you're all wishing you stayed home this morning, goodness gracious, this guy's just awful. Okay, here we go. We're going to talk about prosperity this morning, amen? So, yeah, last Sunday I promised, I promised you guys that we talk about prosperity and blessing, and everyone's like, no, nah, he's, he's not serious. He's not going to talk about that. He just loves that sacrifice and suffering too much. So this week, 
We're going to talk about kingdom prosperity. What does it look like for us to, to walk in prosperity the way that Jesus has laid out in the Scriptures? And I want to take you guys to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. What we're going to do, we're going to start here with Abram. As you guys know uh, from Sunday school, Abram becomes Abraham. He's the father of the covenant of God. Abraham is the one that God chooses to restore everything that's been broken in the Garden of Eden. God has sat back, he has watched what's happened, and he, his heart was grieved. He wants to fix this thing that's been broken, and so he finds a man, and he says, you, I choose you, and I'm going to make you great. And so the funny thing about this passage is it comes, it comes directly after the story of the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel it is a perfect picture of Mammon. It's a picture of how man allied himself with the power of money and technology. It's a picture of what man can do without the hand of God. And man can do great things in this world without God. But we also see the heart of God. The heart of God was that he would partner with man. So he, 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 put, he messes up their entire plan. He destroys that. And, then, and so he shows what the plan of man is. And now he's going to show us what his plan is. And so with this context, we see Abram. Verses 1 through 5. So the Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household. Go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haram. He took his wife, Sarah, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Now, let's pause here. Now, in the Old Testament, we have all different um, contexts about money. You'll find in most of the history annals, basically, like in Kings and Chronicles, in Proverbs and Psalms, you'll see this, this idea that, 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 that money is both a picture of the blessing of God and it's also a curse. But the clearest pictures of the New Testament picture we see of money in the Old Testament is on Abraham, on Solomon, and on Job. And with Abraham, the way that he is blessed by God is unlike anything we see in the Proverbs. It's very different. It's not this idea that he's been blessed with money because of his righteousness, because of what he's done. We actually see a very different story. So here, here with Abraham, a few things I want to show you guys real quick. I want to show you guys that the first thing that happens here is that he is challenged to leave his home country. Okay, now, he gets to take his possessions, it says. One thing that you have to understand about this culture and about this time, okay, the most valuable asset of all things at this time is land. If you have cattle and servants, that's great. But if you have nowhere for them to graze, if you have nowhere to farm, what good is cattle without land? Does that make sense to you? Yeah. And so what happens here is that while he has cattle, while he has servants, while he has possessions, for him to leave his homeland, a place he's lived, by the way, for 75 years, what God is doing is he's challenging Abram's heart. He's saying, will you leave your safety and your security, your livelihood, and trust me instead. One thing you need to understand, kingdom prosperity 
starts with this challenge for every one of us. Will you trust me enough to step out? Pastor Larry, I mean, he would never say this to anybody, but the, the one thing people don't know, whenever he, he chose to come in to help serve the church here, years and years ago, he left a very, very good job for a very bad one. <laughs> a very big paycheck for a very small paycheck. Okay, let's just make that very clear. And, and God challenged him. He said, you're comfortable here. I've blessed you here, but I have something better for you. But it's going to challenge you to step out. And this is where kingdom prosperity starts for every one of us. It has a word. Faith. There is no prosperity from God without faith. And understand this, you can have money and, and, and homes and all sorts of things by your own work, by your own giftings God's given you. You can have all that. That is not a sign that God is with you because you have things. It could be a sign that you're a good worker. It could be a sign that your parents are rich. It could be a sign of anything, right? You won the lottery. <laughs> it, it. But kingdom prosperity starts with faith. Because the first challenge from God is always, will you step out of safety and security? Will you step out of the boat, if you want to use you know, a New Testament example? Will you step out to a place where you must trust me for your needs to be met? This is where kingdom prosperity starts with every one of us. So every time that we pray about God meeting our needs, we pray about the different things that put on his heart, I want you to understand this. When you pray for more from God, he has one answer that will always come to mail immediately. Will you trust me? And so the first challenge we see with Abram is he's, he's challenged to leave security. And again, we don't like change, right? And the one thing I've learned is, as I've gotten older is as you get older, you like change less and less and less. Abram is 75 years old. 75 years old. My grandfather... At 75, he, he had his routine in the morning. He woke up, he had his coffee, he, he read this, he did this. If you were to disrupt his routine, you are in trouble. This was not easy. Abram was not a 20, he wasn't fresh out of college, okay? He wasn't looking for adventure. This was a challenge. And it's the same challenge we all get. Now, if you guys go, Genesis 14, verse 20. We're going to fast forward a little bit here. I want you guys to see a couple of things here with, with Abraham. Abram, we see that he is continually challenged, he is continually tempted to stop relying on God and to rely on money, on mammon, these opportunities to have more possessions. The first one arrives with Lot, his, his nephew. What happens is they're going out into the land, they're traveling, and again the issue becomes not their possessions, it becomes land. Because they have so many different livestock and servants that they are now in trouble because there's not enough land. So the first thing that they do it's because he is the oldest, because he's the firstborn, he should have choice over the best land to, for his flock to, you know, to eat and, and to be taken care of. But he chooses to allow Lot to take this, and he takes the high ground, the mountains. Now, I know that we don't have a lot of farmers in here today, but if you can imagine having hundreds of animals and taking them up a mountain, would that be a fun chore for you? You're going to lose animals. They're going to die. They're going to get lost. You're going to have workers who need to have more food and more, you know, water just to handle the journey. It's difficult. And again, if he could have taken the other route, 
he could have had the easy ability to gain more possessions and more power. And at this time, the more numbers you had, the more livestock. This was power. This was a picture of money in the Old Testament. So he chose to give to Lot. The second test comes here because next, as they begin to go into land, they begin to be challenged by all the different kings in the area. Because again, land is crucial. If you don't have land, you cannot live. And so the kings in the area don't want him there. So now he's being challenged, and so he's been in a battle, and he's won the battle. And so now, in verse 20, the king of Sodom shows up and says, so then Abram gave his tenth of everything. And of course, that's talking about the king of Salem. We can't even open when that went up this morning. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. And again, he's offering to give Abram all of his possessions from his kingdom. You have to understand, he was extremely wealthy. So he's offering to give Abram all of this free money. And, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath. That I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. Stop there. The issue here is about source. The issue here is about, am I going to continue to rely on God or on anything or anyone else? The reason that Abram is a picture of prosperity is he continually resists the temptation to rely on his possessions and his wealth for his future. And so what happens right after this, if you guys go down to chapter 15, verse 1, it says, so after this, the, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. This is a prophetic picture of exactly what Jesus came to teach. That the true heart of God was not to give Abram things. It was to give Abram himself. Are you seeing that? The struggle we all must make is on what matters most to us. What truly has value. And at the heart of this struggle with money is us having to, to focus our eyes and our hearts to realize that the thing that has most value is not of this world. It is God himself. This was the heart of God the entire time. Because if you notice, Abram had just given a tenth of his things. And the reminder comes in saying, I want you to remember it's not about your things. I am the reward I have for you. What happens in the next couple chapters is that Abram and his wife are, are getting older and they have no heir, they don't have a son. What happens is they begin to ask God for a son. He says, I will provide for you. But it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen the way they want it or when they want it. So Abram, he finally falls to the temptation of mammon. Because he was a rich man, he had servants. And what he chooses to do is he chooses to take his power and to get what he wants right then his way. So he sleeps with his maidservant, and the first son he has is Ishmael. The second son, after he repents and he goes in obedience, we see becomes the heir of Israel. And from these two sons, we, we have the, the descendants, the descendants of the Muslim families and the airlines and the descendants of Israel. One of the greatest Sources of hatred, bitterness, violence, and death came from this decision of Abram to partner with money. His ability to have what he wanted 
in that moment and not to rely on God. Are you seeing this? Now, if you guys would, would turn with me, 2 Corinthians 8-9. 2 Corinthians 8-9. Now, what's, what's very interesting we see in the Scriptures, often there are things that take place in the Old Testament which are a picture of what's going to happen when Jesus returns. Everything in the Old Testament is an arrow pointing to what's going to be fulfilled in Jesus. So when Jesus comes, we see that He begins to live out this reality. So basically, the covenant that God always desired to have with Abram, with man, He was never able to fulfill. But Jesus is the one who ends up fulfilling it. And so what we see here... So we see that the, the original challenge for man was if they would give up their control, if they would give up the ability to control their lives and trust God, He would restore and make all things right. That was the promise that was made to Abram. And so with Jesus, we see that He comes in this form and He is the one who's able to walk this out. He truly is the one who's able to accomplish what man couldn't do. And so here in this passage, we see Second uh, Corinthians 8, verse 9. Here's what it says. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. If you're seeing what happens here, Jesus himself is confronted with the same challenge of faith and trust in his Father. He comes to the earth and he must literally give up all of his authority, his power, his influence, his resources. He must give up all of that to come to the earth and to trust his Father. And the ultimate moment of this is right at the cross. And we see this human being who does not want pain, who does not want to, to, to be tortured, who does not want to die. And he in that moment could choose to take back all of the power which is rightfully his and free himself. Let me ask you. If you were about to be put on a cross, I'm sure you've all seen the Passion, Ooh, right? Have you all seen the Passion? Okay. If that's about to happen to you, and if you had an army, or if you had a fortune, would you use it to stop that from happening? Would you use money, the power, to secure your freedom, your happiness, and your future? Would you use it? You better believe your butt you would, right? I'm good. Would you like a bribe? Jesus is put into this moment where he himself is tempted to take back the power and the resources to protect his own freedom, to protect his future, to protect his life, and yet he does not. He takes absolute poverty, meaning powerlessness. Poverty is not about what's in your pocket. It's about your ability to make what you want happen. He gives it up. In, in doing that, in giving up his power, in submitting himself to death on the cross, he in turn gives us power, riches. I shouldn't have to explain it, but I will. The riches that he purchased for us here in St. Corinthians is not money. And of course, it's in Christ. The riches is the riches of the kingdom of heaven. In giving up all of his power and resources and, and freedom, he has secured the ultimate freedom and power and future for us. And so kingdom prosperity starts with one challenge. Will you give up everything you have in trust? 
I promise it'll get much lighter after this. Here we go. So here's what happens. Here are the two steps to entering in the kingdom prosperity. The way that Jesus teaches us to walk into a place where everything, where we need not worry or fear about money or the needs of this world, it has two things to it. Here's the first one. We have to learn to have one treasure. Prosperity begins when we realize what truly has worth. When Jesus becomes the desire of our hearts, we are free from the control of money. Uh, whenever you guys run the fast, okay, was there something that, that you guys started fasting that when you didn't have it for a few weeks, you really didn't want it again? Was there anything for you guys? When you're fasting with meat or coffee? Soda for me, okay? The first week, not having Coke is like, it's death. I mean, like you just see someone, you know, it fizzes when they open it, and you're like, oh, my God. It's, it's terrible. You're just like, this, you know, you're just like, life is not worth living, you know, without Coke. It's awful. But about three weeks later, there comes a place when I see it, and I'm like, I don't even want that. When you begin to, when you become infatuated with something else, other things are not attractive to you. Does that make sense? And so the first key to prosperity is we become infatuated with Jesus. And all these other things that used to pull our hearts so strong, all of a sudden just, meh. Meh. Come on. That raise you've been wanting, that promotion, that vacation house, that boat, that new guitar, Dean. When you're infatuated with Jesus, you're like, I don't care about a guitar. Come on. It's what happens. I mean, honestly, there's a time for me, uh, you know, when I, I was just so fervent for Jesus. You know, it's like, TV, I don't care about TV. I'm not watching TV ever again, you know. I watch TV all the time. I'm just, okay. I'm just I'm being honest. Okay. Anyways, you see what I'm saying? When the first step to prosperity is we get infatuated with Jesus. We return to our first love. And so the enticement, the pull, the draw that all these other things have, that they lose their interest. The second step to stepping into kingdom prosperity is we learn to have one source. We must train ourselves to rely and trust on Him. Not looking to any other source or relying on currency of faith alone and the faithfulness of God. What this means is this. When we learn to rely on God only, when I need anything, the first place I turn is God. For example, if I were to find out that my son, it, you know, came down with cancer tomorrow, the first place I turn is not what treatment can we get, what hospital do we go to, and there's a place for hospitals and treatment, don't get me wrong. But when I learn to have one source, my first thought is prayer. I'm looking to Him to meet this need. When I, when I go through the, the account, the bank account, and I see we're short and we need to pay the mortgage, my first reaction isn't, oh, I should go work a double shift. I shouldn't ask this person for money. My first reaction is, all right, Lord, here's what I need. 
When I come home after a long day and I'm just feeling empty and I'm frustrated and I'm depressed, the first thing I do isn't turn on the TV or open up the catalog to, you know, the boats and fishing reel, whatever it is. The f- I don't go home and, like, play my guitar. Dean, I sent the message to you. The first thing I do is I turn to him. Lord, there is a hole in me. I need you to fill it. We learn to have one source. And what happens is when you learn to turn to God first in everything, you are so less concerned about money, about currency. Because again, when I'm worried about money, it means that I need to get something from someone. Okay, make sense? If I'm concerned about money, it means that I have something I need from someone because they need my money. It's the only way I'll get what I want from them is with money. Who has ever bribed God before really effectively? Have you learned that money doesn't work with God very well? God, I will give you 300 bucks if you just do what I... Come, just five, 500 tops. He doesn't seem to be moved by that, does he? So when I'm looking to him as my source, I need a different currency with him. The only currency he receives is faith. So when I learn to operate by this new source, that means I'm, I'm learning my entire life when I'm looking to you for my needs. My entire life is about getting money. When God is my source, my entire life is about trusting God. How can I trust God? How can I walk in faith? How can I have faith for this, for that, and for the other? When my life becomes about looking to Him for everything, my life becomes about the currency of the kingdom of God. Faith. When I look to anyone or anything else, my life becomes about the currency of this world. Money. And my life will be dictated by either this currency or that currency. Amen. I like that one. All right, here we go. So, as we're talking about prosperity, the way we get there is by having the one treasure and by having the one source. But here's what prosperity looks like. Here's what what prosperity in the kingdom of God looks like. The first thing prosperity looks like is peace enjoy. If you notice the Apostle Paul, every time he was writing about the needs or the worries, he would always say, and I pray that you would abound, and he would talk about these words. And when he talks about the weight of, on hearts and minds, because if you guys have ever been in need, if you guys have ever had a bill you needed, or your son was sick and, you know, you couldn't pay the hospital bill to get him, you know, well, there is a weight that comes on you. There is a fear that comes over you. One of the, the whips of money, of mammon, is fear. Always worrying about not having enough. What if this happened, or that happened, or this happened? What would I do? In the first picture of what prosperity in the kingdom of God looks like, when I am trusting God for everything, I need not worry about a thing. If he takes care of the, of the sparrow, he will take care of me. If he dresses the flower, he'll... Dress me up pretty. I, I don't know. That one always got me. I was like, yeah. I'm not sure if I want to be dressed like the flowers of the field, but you know. The second picture of kingdom prosperity is contentment. Prosperity includes learning how to be fully content in want and in excess. When we are storing our treasure in heaven, it it cannot be stolen from us. And when it can't be stolen from us, 
that means we can't be moved by circumstances. A few years ago when the economy took a turn, so many tithers came to me and said, I just don't know what's going to happen in the economy. So what with the economy? What do you think about the, you know, believers in Sudan or Syria? What do they care about the economy? I mean, goodness gracious. It's when we are storing the things that matter most to us in a safe that can never be touched by anything in this world, when our job goes good, our job goes bad. When our paycheck goes up, when our paycheck goes down, we do not move. Because it doesn't have anything to do with what matters most to us. My ability to get my needs met is, is measured by my faith, not by my work. The third thing that kingdom prosperity looks like, it looks like empty hands. Here's what I mean by this. There's some homeless um, men that I used to spend time with when I was in college. And what's interesting to me about them was they would always have certain things. They'd have a backpack or like a cart. And they'd have certain things they would take with them everywhere. They didn't have much. But what they had, they would protect with their life. I mean, if you went to touch the cart, don't touch the cart. I'm serious. Don't touch the cart. Rule number one. That is theirs. They grip it and they protect it. And while it was so easy for me to see it with them, all of a sudden it began to hit me with the things in my life. Whenever we begin to feel like we don't have enough, whenever we begin to fear for our future or our needs or our family, we begin to grip tight to whatever it is that gives us security. If it's our job, if, if it's our paycheck, if it's our savings account, we grip tight to that. And the kingdom prosperity is open hands. It's people who literally live as if nothing they own is theirs. No job they have is their identity. God, if you want me to work here, I work here. Okay, fine. If he takes that out of my hands and he puts, gives me this job, that's fine. If I'm living here and he takes that away and he sends me over here, he puts that in my hands, that's fine. If I have $10, he puts it, oh, it's great, $10. If he takes it away, I'm broke. If he gives me $10 million, I don't care. It's not mine anyway. Open hands. Your hands are directly connected to your heart. What you're willing to let go of is a measure of how much you trust God. If he told you today to, to write a check for everything in your account, to quit your job, and to, you know, move to the Philippines like Mike Keys did. Heart check. How much are you going to grip and how much are you going to let go? Kingdom prosperity is open-handed. We never grasp anything because it's not truly ours. The only thing we grasp tightly is God himself. And we will never let go of that. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Kingdom prosperity. We are always expecting more than enough. When you've learned how to live open-handed, meaning where God can just allow anything to flow right through your hands. If he gave you a... Six million dollar house tomorrow, and then he had you give it away the next day. When you get to that place where it's not about the things, the things don't have strings connected to you, you are now ready to be entrusted with resources for the kingdom of God. The people that I know, Brother Wayne Myers is, is one that I've really been blessed by. 
He's had millions and millions and millions of dollars flow right through his life. And today, if you were to talk to him about his savings account, it's almost nothing. Because he just trusts God for the next car and for the next house and for the next meal and for the next bill. And this guy's had millions and millions flow right through his hands because he's understood that none of it was ever his. But he's never gone without a need being met. And he's got to enjoy some of the best homes and vehicles and, and trips and meals that most of us might not get to do. But he's learned to live with open hands. Here's the last thing about King Prosperity. It's full of faithful stewardship. Not being faithful, it means you are a steward who stewards by faith. Meaning, you live in a way to where, yes, you're aware of, of what's coming into your hands. You're faithful and stewarding that way. But you're full of faith in the way that everything that comes in your hands, you're looking for where it needs to go. All right, Lord, I got this huge bonus. Where is it going? I have this great home that you gave me. What do you want to use it for? Where is it going? The one thing about a steward is that nothing is really theirs. Their job is just to direct where it goes. And so when you come to a place of stewardship, God will put amazing things through your life, but it's also that it goes somewhere else. If you are someone who lives in a way to where you are always tempted to hold on to things, you'll find the only things that go into your hands are ones that you put into your hands, not the ones that God put there. Would you guys stay with me this morning?